You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. What do Australia's parliamentarians think about cybersecurity and critical technology? In this special episode, David Rowe speaks to Aspie Chair and former parliamentarian Gay Brotman about the landmark study she led which canvasses the views of parliamentarians on cybersecurity and critical technologies. They discuss the results of the ASPE study, including gaps in knowledge, differences of opinion, and unexpected responses, and how policymakers can keep pace with technological developments that underpin all aspects of society, including health, infrastructure, defence, and the economy. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm David Rowe, and I'm here today with Gay Brotman. Gay is a former diplomat, member of parliament, and shadow front bencher. She's also Aspie's chair and the lead author of a study that looks at the attitudes and knowledge of MPs and senators on cybersecurity and critical technology. It's a fascinating report. Gay, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. Let's start with some of the good news in the study. Parliamentarians are very aware of the challenges and vulnerabilities relating to cyber and critical tech. They're very engaged on the importance of these fields. Just give us a snapshot of what they're most concerned about. A range of concerns across both cybersecurity and critical technology because the study was divided in two parts. We were looking, we were wanting to, to get our policy leaders, our policy shapers, their views on a range of cybersecurity elements and then also a range of uh, critical technology elements. So in terms of the top line sort of challenges that they see and the issues that they're concerned about, they do believe we need to develop a whole of government cross-sectoral approach to cybersecurity and critical technology. Also, they're very keen for our democracy, our uh, society and critical infrastructure sectors to be protected and particularly from cyber attacks and cyber-enabled political interference. They identified a need to increase cybersecurity investment and engagement with the industry and the general public, and that is very much, as you know, a feature of the cybersecurity strategy that was recently released by the government, particularly on that small business sector and also this investment there and also a range of approaches to engaging more and empowering more the small business sector and also the, the broader community. They are very keen for us to build sovereign skills and capabilities, particularly in a range of sectors that they identified. And I'm thinking here AI, quantum, cybersecurity, robotics, and space. Mm. Keen for us to improve the education and empowerment of the community online. Keen for us to address this issue of ransomware attacks. And I'll come to that in more detail when we discuss the, that particular area because sure. the findings were surprising. Mm-hmm. And that was also, as you know, addressed quite comprehensively in the cybersecurity strategy that was recently released. The need to keep up with competition and particularly adversaries. The need to ensure that our critical technology sectors reflect our values. And as I said, the need to develop and harness specific technologies, particularly space, AI, robotics, hypersonic technologies and quantum. 
So clearly an attunement to a lot of what the key challenges are and the key challenges is they're recognised by, I suppose, the, the community of experts as well. I, the less good news that we uh, see in the study is that they MPs and senators don't feel like they have an adequate education in these areas. Just give us the overall flavour of what they're saying about their own information, their knowledge and access to it. Yeah, there was a very strong call for more information and more information that is practical and objective. So they, they're having conversations with business on cybersecurity issues, on AI, on quantum, on a range of critical technologies and also cybersecurity issues. But that a lot of the, the time those conversations are involve basically pitching a product. Mm. And so the, they're very, very keen. What the, the call out, there was a very strong message that, we, that came from the study and the fact that they want more information from those objective sources and we're thinking here, and that was one of our recommendations, uh, academic institutions, think tanks, civil society organisations, organisations that can provide independent information, objective information, but is also practical because there's a lot of talk about AI and there's a lot of talk about quantum, but there's a very big gap between the conversations on those issues and the actual detailed understanding of what it actually means in terms of opportunities for Australia's uh, national security, opportunities for our economic prosperity, opportunities for us to export and also improve the cyber resilience uh, and the sovereign capability in this country. So they're very, very keen for more details on those particular areas in a very practical, factual way. And I'll just do some quotes. Sure thing, please. They're sort of saying, you know, I want to know more about everything. We basically don't know what we don't know and I want to know more about everything. Also, everyone kind of knows about technology but they just accept it in the form that it comes to them. Policymakers need to know more about it but that's a difficulty. We've got to find ways to explain it better. Parliamentarians, they, they are acutely aware of the fact that they need to lead on the debate on this. They need to lead the, the nation, the community on discussion on these issues. They're very complex issues and they do understand understand their responsibility mm. as policy leaders, as policy shapers, as policy makers. They're saying that they need to lead on this debate, but there's a reluctance to engage in attribution. But we have to do more of it because we need to make it real for constituents. I think parliamentarians should be presented with basic information about what things are and what they mean, statistics and details. The best way of understanding is through connecting us with examples and showing how Australia is placed to handle it. It's an important area for parliament. As they, they acknowledge that, that this is important. It's evolving very rapidly, that they need to stay on top of it, but they need that factual information. And as I said, I want to know more about all of it and about what we know and what we don't know. Politicians should know more about this stuff. Yeah. Great to have that kind of uh, frankness coming out. And so those are uh, you're, you're quoting directly from. I'm quoting MPs directly and from. Yep. Yes, that's right. Right. As a former parliamentarian yourself, you have some obvious personal experience of this. Just describe what it's like trying to grapple with policy challenges in these sorts of complex areas when you don't have those necessary briefings. Well, you you but you rely on, on what you read, and you rely on briefings from people who choose to meet with you or make an attempt to meet with you or make a meeting. Uh, so you're relying on that and you're, you're also relying on your own sort of curiosity. It's really important to be curious as a, as mm. a parliamentarian and as a policy shaper, maker, leader. Uh, it's very important. But what you tend to do is you tend to gravitate because there's just so much going on uh, in terms of legislation, in terms of issues of the day. There's so much going on. You do tend to gravitate to your area of, of interest and, I suppose, 
suppose, expertise. For me, it was definitely national security and foreign policy, given my background. And so I sort of gravitated to the committees that specialised in those areas. I gravitated to the caucus committees. I gravitated to parliamentary friendship groups that specialised in those areas. I set up parliamentary friendship groups that specialised in those areas. So you do tend to gravitate to those areas of expertise and experience and background knowledge. Yes, you you do you do discover new areas, and as I said, every they're all curious and they are keen to get as uh, across as much information as possible. But that's why a briefing, a proactive approach to briefings, not just in sitting weeks but also in non-sitting weeks, when they're back in their electorate or they're back in their duty senate area and they've got the chart time to actually have a briefing, probe, ask questions in a private environment, in a safe environment where they can basically take as long as they need to actually get across the information and not just in terms of, okay, quantum is X mm. or AI is Y, mm. but what it means for us as a nation, what it means for us as for export opportunities, what it means for us in terms of sovereign capability and what it means in a very practical and factual sense. Right. I'm interested to know why and how cyber and tech are a bit different here. As you say, MPs and senators tend to bring with them some expertise from their previous lives or whatever. They have particular sort of areas of policy interest. I mean, given that they're not, you know, not everyone is a policy specialist in health, education, national security, all those sorts of um, more traditional policy areas. Explain why you think critical tech and cyber are a bit different here. Is it because they sort of cut right through all policy areas? Does it, a bit like electricity, it sort of flows through everything? They are. They do flow through everything. And so that's why it was terrific to engage with these parliamentarians to get a sense about what their understanding is, what they know, what they don't know, where their knowledge gaps, what they want to know about, because they do understand that it is basically the underpinning. Critical technologies and cybersecurity underpin every sector of the community, every sector of our economy, every sector of our national security environment. That's why they're so keen to get more information about it because whatever their policy interest is, be it health, be it education, be it social policy, be it national security, they are acutely aware of the fact that this is the thread of critical technology and cybersecurity runs through every sector of our economy and our national security environment. What about their own security? MPs are obviously targets for malicious cyber activity, whether that's espionage, foreign interference, what have you. How concerned did you find that they were about that, about the extent of their own security in the study? One third of them said that, of them said that they, they didn't feel safe online, but they have developed strategies, sort of risk mitigation strategies, risk management strategies to address that. And so they are very cautious online. One parliamentarian said that they felt that their their phone was a sort of a, an open line to the CCP. Another said that they're very cautious about what they put in texts and what they put on voicemail. So they are very cautious about it. They are one third said that they never feel safe online, but they are, as I said, developing these strategies to mitigate it. In terms of given how cautious they are and given the strategies that they're doing to mitigate those risks, in terms of what they're concerned about, they are concerned about data management or the data, the personal data that's actually out there. 
they in terms of what's been put up there before they went into politics in terms of Insta, in terms of Facebook, in terms of LinkedIn, in terms of Twitter. They are concerned about you know, what could happen potentially to that data mm. and they're also concerned about what's actually happening at home. Uh, they realise that they've got the controls in place to manage to mitigate their own risks, their own personal risks and their own personal data to some extent, texts, mobiles, but they're concerned about the fact that, okay, what's I've got two kids at high school, mm. what does that actually mean in terms of the environment at home? Is that going to be safe at home? Mm. So they are acutely aware of the fact that as politicians they are potentially a target and so therefore they need to have the protections right across every environment they're operating. Yeah, imagine, uh, imagine that's stressful. Just tell me a little bit, um, a little bit more about data management, just for, you know, for, I suppose, a, a more lay audience and not to mention people like myself. Just explain what, what we're talking about there with data management and why, why is it something that's so uniformly supported, do you think, across the MPs? Yeah, facilities? we were very keen to, to get an assessment from them, their views on data management to strategies. It was in a way a tribute to the late and great uh, David Irvin, who's been on this issue for decades. And so we'd asked a range of questions about data management, about data management in the public sector and also in the private sector. And 100% of them came back and, and said that we need a data management strategy for the public sector. Uh, 83 said that we need one for the private and public sector. But it was just, it was interesting getting their views. So in terms of what we're talking about here, and again, this was picked up by the government cybersecurity mm. strategy, which was terrific. It's it's basically data management strategy articulates what data needs to be protected at what level and how it's going to be protected. It defines the crown jewels, the absolute, the most important data that is vital to our national security, that is vital to our economic prosperity and outlines how we need to protect that, not just in terms of standards, in terms of governance, but also in terms of storage uh, because there was a very strong view that particularly identifiable data, citizen identifiable data, and also data that is classified needs to be stored in Australia. So a data management strategy outlines what is actually crown jewels. It articulates that so that the public sector and the private sector have an idea about what is seen in an objective way as as vitally important to our national security and economic prosperity. Then it outlines how you actually need to do that. And again, that was picked up, uh, as I said, which was terrific in the cybersecurity strategy uh, in terms of what classification of data, particularly on that sort of national interest data and also retention of data. So that was really, it was terrific to see that that actually was uh, picked up there. Right, okay. Just coming back to the degree of information and access to information that parliamentarians have, tell us where they're getting their info from at the moment. You mentioned the briefings from the private sector, for instance, which means that, you know, they're getting a particular perspective from there. But do they have clear pathways to get further briefings as they need them. If, if they decide, hey, I, I really need to know a bit more about this area or that area, particularly if there's a debate going on or if there's, you know, there's some sort of, you know, uh, policy requirement that, that means they need it. Is there a department, an office, an agency, something like that, that they 
naturally can go to? Well, we asked them that question and just one parliamentarian said that he or she, I don't know who it was, mm. was getting the majority of information from Hollywood right. on te- critical technology and cybersecurity. go either way. Uh, so I, I do think Hollywood plays a role here. Right. Uh, someone else also referenced the Bourne identity and how useful that was in terms of providing a, uh, some information on cybersecurity. Great films, but I'm not sure you want to rely on them. technology. Yep. But at the moment, yeah, there, there is a view that there's a range of agencies that are involved in it in terms of home affairs, in terms of Australian Signals Directorate, in terms of defence, in terms of the Australian Cyber Security Centre. And, and again, it, it underscores the fact that their responses underscored how their understanding of the complexity of the issue. So that there was a view that not one department should basically hold all the information should be the go-to for information that should be the one stop. Because of the complex nature of these issues, critical technology and cybersecurity, they did see a role for a range of key government agencies right. to play a role as the, as the sort of as the multiple leads on the management, on the governance, on the implementation of strategy on cybersecurity and critical technology. Okay. Again, coming back to your former role as a parliamentarian yourself, how surprising was this to you? I mean, was it consistent with your experience in parliament or different? Yeah, it was consistent with my experience. And again, this is also addressed in the cybersecurity strategy to some extent, particularly in the action plan, where a lot of responsibility and accountability has been given to home affairs, but then there's a number of agencies underneath, in addition to home affairs, that will be working with home affairs on particular issues, be it the business engagement piece and the business standards piece, be it the data management piece, be it the community engagement piece. There's home affairs, I think, is the key agency for most of those initiatives, but there's a number of others who who are working with home affairs Mm. as the lead. Right. So the cybersecurity strategy, as you've indicated, has already gone quite some way to addressing um, some of the issues that are raised in the in the study. Can you just give us a snapshot of what the recommendations were? What did you decide based on the feedback from MPs and senators that they really need? We made three recommendations. The first was to create an education program for parliamentarians on cybersecurity and critical technology. And we made the recommendation that, that supports an idea that's already been floated by two MPs in a sort of bipartisan way, mm. by Dr. Daniel Molino and also Aaron Violi, that establish a parliamentary technology assessment office. Now, that office that is based on the UK experience. They've got something similar in the UK, so it's in a way not a new idea, but it's based on the approach that's been recommended is based on what we have with the Parliamentary Budget Office where you've got a separate budget, it's staffed, you've got an agency that's set up to sort of do independent evaluations of budgetary issues, but in this case it would be technology issues. And so we supported the idea and made the recommendation that this parliamentary uh, technology office should be established Mm. as a way of providing a a vehicle, another vehicle, an objective, independent, resourced vehicle to brief parliamentarians. In addition, we made the recommendation for briefings from those academic institutions, from think tanks, from civil society, from business to actually do those briefings in sitting weeks and non-sitting weeks. We really toyed with it, whether it should just be sitting weeks and just use, say, the parliamentary a number of parliamentary friendship groups to actually 
be the organisers of these briefings. And there's a role for them and there's a role for that to play in addition to the committees as well. But those parliamentary groups and the committees, as, as I mentioned before, tend to attract people who are interested in those issues, not the broader parliamentary community. And given the fact that the, this issue, critical technology, cybersecurity, runs through everything, mm. underpins everything mm. in our lives. We felt that we needed a different approach. By all means, have those briefings in the sitting weeks through those mechanisms, but also go out, do a kind of outreach program, do a roadshow program where people can hear about these issues and discuss them without the, the enormous time pressures of parliament yep. in a private environment. And, and how busy are parliamentarians during sitting weeks oh, It's anyway? crazy busy, mm-hmm. as you know. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy busy. You've got chamber responsibilities, you've got committee responsibilities, you've got party resp- political party responsibilities, you've got community responsibilities. There's yep. a, a lot going on. Sure, sure. Yeah, you're running from one thing to another in addition to going into the chamber to speak in addition to going to divisions. Yep, yep. And, Gay, I'm interested in some of the other findings that were in the report. One jumped out at me in particular around ransomware. Just tell us about that. Yeah, we asked the question about whether paying ransoms should be illegal and I was really surprised at the results. Mm-hmm. Uh, 56% said that they should be illegal, uh, 28% said they should be legal mm-hmm. and the rest were don't know or didn't answer the question. Wow. Those responses spoke to me about the fact that parliamentarians understand the complexities around this issue, the fact that it is a rapidly evolving environment and that blanket bans might not be appropriate at this point in time given the fact that we need industry, business to actually build up their cyber security and their cyber resilience. And so I just want to quote from Please. the report in terms of what they said. So for those who who were in the illegal camp, they said, we don't pay ransoms to terrorists. It should be the same in the physical as virtual world. We don't pay ransoms or else it turns into an industry, a lucrative crime. It's the same in the physical as in the virtual world. And then there were those who uh, who actually, again, underst- they all understood the complexity of the issue. So, But for those who sort of realised that it is evolving, they said we will eventually illegalise paying ransomware demands, but we can't do that yet. A gradual shift into illegal in the next five years, we need to give people warnings and get the message out before we make it illegal. And also one of the parliamentarians commented on the fact that companies do have a sort of fiduciary responsibility mm. to their shareholders and others, to the company. And so it said it could be harmful if you made part ransomware demands illegal. Company directors would ruin their fiduciary responsibility to their companies. Company law is the number one priority and keeping them solvent. I've got a problem with ransomware demands. Our protections are not adequate. If you protect yourself sufficiently, you won't be in that circumstance. If it's just the government, the real problem is private companies. It's like go away money mm-hmm. and that's the end of it. So really interesting views, surprising views. Yeah. And I think that the complexity of the situation and where we are at the moment uh, has been acknowledged in the government's cybersecurity strategy in the fact that they've established this no-fault, no-liability obligation uh, for the conversations with industry and business and also our national security and cybersecurity agencies. And also they're developing a playbook. So there's a great deal of assistance that's being provided to industry, to small business, 
uh, through a particular strategy, but to industry on the ransomware issue. Um, well, I'm sure all of my ASPE colleagues will be uh, poised to contribute to um, to the further education of uh, parliamentarians on these issues. Um, Gay, it's been wonderful. It's a fascinating study and I, uh, I hope everybody reads it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Steph. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.